to Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell. This is episode 128. Today we will be talking with Dr. John Malott, co-author of The Ancient Origins of Consciousness, How the Brain Created Experience. But before we get into that interview, I want to thank everyone who has been listening and supporting the show during my recent six months hiatus. It's great to be back. Of course, I also want to remind you that you can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, and you can find detailed show notes and episode transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. I will be back after the interview to review the key ideas and to tell you what I've planned for the rest of 2016. John Malott is my guest today. John, it is great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. It's really an honor to be here. John, could you start out by just giving us a brief overview of this book, The Ancient Origins of Consciousness? Well, it's a book that talks about primary consciousness, the most basic type, just having any kind of experience at all without any reflection. And it argues for this most basic type of consciousness that it's present in more animals than most experts have thought and that it evolved a lot earlier during the first great explosion of of complicated animals over half a billion years ago in the Cambrian period. And it talks about how all the vertebrates pass various tests for having the criteria for consciousness, all the vertebrate animals. And it also talks about how some other animals, maybe arthropods and insects, and also maybe octopuses and their relatives, might have consciousness. And also, we're very interested in the classical hard problem of consciousness. And we actually were bold, and we tried to say we have a solution to the hard problem. It's the biggest problem there is in science. So we're giving it our shot. And we say that in order to do this, we have to be combining viewpoints from a lot of fields, from neurobiology, and definitely from evolution and the history to see how consciousness could have evolved over the years. And then with some philosophy so that we can answer the big philosophical questions about the hard problem. So that's kind of the climax of the book where we try to answer the hard problem. Well, that was a great introduction. I hope that that makes everybody eager to hear more. Can you tell me a little bit about you, who you are, and how you got involved on this project? Well, I've always been very interested in the big questions like the meaning of life and fossils and paleontology, especially since I've been a kid. So throughout my education, I've been interested in and investigated such major, major questions as how did the first vertebrate animals evolve? This is big because we're vertebrates and arguably vertebrates are the most successful group of all animals, the most complex with the most complex brains not the most abundant animals, but we are having the most complex brains. So their evolution is globally important. And then I was also very interested in the origin of jaws in vertebrates, because when the first jawless fishes evolved jaws, that allowed a tremendous evolutionary jump in predation and food handling. And so almost all the vertebrates today are jawed. 
the vast majority are. And I've also been very interested in how all sorts of animals and cells and bacteria and plants and everything are all related to one another. Because by understanding how they're interrelated, you can model evolution and the evolutionary processes better. So in 2013, when Todd Feinberg first contacted me with the idea that we could tackle the idea of the origin of consciousness and even tackling the hard problem as well, I jumped at it, especially because he had the thesis and I felt good arguments that basic consciousness first appeared in the very first vertebrate animals, the, the ancestral fish. Okay, and so what was it that he brought to the the mix? I mean, I understand that you are on opposite ends of the country. Oh, well, he is a an expert clinical psychiatrist who studies consciousness in human patients that have problems and difficulties and brain injuries that interfere with their consciousness. And I think, however, that he always had a a big side interest since the 1990s in when consciousness evolved because he did want to answer the hard problem, which is is related to that. So he knows all the good philosophical questions about the hard problem and the explanatory gap, and he brought that in. And so he basically drove the thesis of the book with his initial idea that the first vertebrates were conscious and also with his uh, philosophical background. Great. So I think you were clear about this, but just for the sake of making sure there's no misunderstanding, can you re-clarify what kind of consciousness we're talking about today? Well, it's the most basic type of consciousness. It has many names, but primary consciousness is the one I think I like the best. And it's the consciousness of just having any kind of experience at all. Uh, feeling something that it's like to be. A rock, there's nothing it's like to be a rock. But a human, there's definitely something it's like to be a human. Thomas Nagel wrote a famous paper, What's It Like to Be a Bat? In the bat's world that's sonar-centered, there's something it's like to be that's different from the type of consciousness that we might experience as a human. So another way to talk about primary consciousness is just being aware of stimuli, aware of objects in the environment, but with no reflection at all. So we're definitely not talking about human-level consciousness here. We're not talking about any self-awareness. We're not talking about thinking about thoughts, not talking about what you call access consciousness. This is just pure, unreflected experience. So it lowers the bar, and I want to be clear that in our claims, we're not saying that these simple lamprey fish are self-aware or have human-level consciousness, nor are we saying that bugs and insects have human-level consciousness. Just the basic ability to have subjectivity and subjective experience. But then subjectivity is the hard problem. Yes, right. But that's why we're happy to attack it. Everything else is... I feel kind of just window dressing. and So how does this primary consciousness relate to the term sentience? Sentience. Well, sentience is a term that my co-author likes to use, and I have a little bit of a hard time understanding what that term is. I think sentience 
in a broad sense mean all kind of feeling, but actually we use it in our book to mean something related to emotions, positive and negative feelings of liking and disliking. It's used that way in the animal literature, animal rights literature, where they're talking about whether animals feel pain. So sentience can be either, I guess, all types of primary consciousness or just uh, positive or negative, what I call affective or emotional feelings. Okay. Well, we'll come back to that later and see where that goes. But Oh, there's something I should go back and say about consciousness. When you were asking me about consciousness, we also call primary consciousness sensory consciousness, basic sensory consciousness, because we like to view consciousness from the sensory point of view, perceiving what is sensed by the senses. And I know that many of your recent interviewees and many people also relate consciousness to how it can lead to behavior and motor responses and things like that and behavioral decisions. We definitely agree that there's that link between the sensory and motor, but we focus a lot more on the sensory type of consciousness. I do want to go back to this fundamental question about subjective experience. Do you feel comfortable talking about how in the book you guys broke this into parts rather than just talking about the traditional qualia? To answer your questions about subdividing consciousness, we're really talking about subdividing sensory consciousness. And in our book, we divide it into three types, but I can simplify and just combine a couple and divide it into two types. One type of consciousness is not necessarily associated with any emotional reaction at all. It's simply being conscious of what we sense, actually building a sensory mental image to make a big, unified, conscious stage that has, it's actually a, a sensory simulation of the outside world or the inner body. And I call that the consciousness of sensory images, map-like consciousness of sensory image, because all the senses come to build a map-like representation and image of the world. And so I think Dr. Feinberg likes to call that exteroceptive consciousness because most of the sensory information comes from our distant senses of what we see, what we hear, what we smell, etc., the extraceptive senses. But I... I like to bring in the inner body senses and lots of other senses. So I just call it the consciousness of sensory mental images where we're reproducing, uh, making a simulation of our world and also our inner body and we're consciously aware of it. Now, that's the non-emotional type, type that can be fairly non-emotional. And we figured that the other type would be what we call affective consciousness, which is your emotional consciousness. And that's not uh, really the same thing. The qualia for going back to the sensory consciousness of mental images are things like the red of red, the redness of red pigment, the pitch of a sound. But the qualia of affective consciousness are feelings and how they affect the body. And they're not so much traits of physical objects. They're feelings of feeling good and feeling bad. And I should say for affective consciousness, we break it down as much as possible 
we say the most simple type is like and dislike. Or the basic effects, just about all that we treat, are liking, that means being attracted to something, and disliking, that means being repulsed by something so that we want to want to get away from it. We think all the more complicated emotions can be just boiled down to those basics, especially in the most basic form of consciousness, primary consciousness. Well, those are good points. I think that I might not have been really clear in the way I asked my question, though, because what I was trying to get at was in the book, you talk about the qualities that make up subjective consciousness or the hard problem being qualia, unity, referral, and mental causation, that those are the four parts of the hard problem that we need to be able to solve. Oh, sure, sure. Just as primary consciousness can be divided into two parts, like I was saying, the hard problem can be divided into four parts as well, or there are four subjective things or subdivisions in subjectivity. And one of them is qualia, which is just qualities of things, different qualities, different colors, different perceptions, different feelings. That's qualia. And traditionally, the quest for solving the hard problem is focused just on qualia and trying to explain what qualia are as the basic subjective units, the basic subjective things. But Todd Feinberg and I are splitters. We like to subdivide, subdivide, divide and conquer. And we thought by dividing subjectivity into more aspects, we might be able to solve the hard problem better because nobody's really divided it up so much, divide and conquer. So we also noticed, and he came up with this, that subjectivity also has unity, mental causation, and referral, not just qualia. And unity means that there's a central stage of consciousness. We have a central conscious field with all the qualia experienced in that field. That's mental unity, just one conscious stage. It's not all split up and fragmented for our experience. Unity. And then there's referral. Consciousness is always about something. It's about the tree that I'm looking at out my window. It's about the bad smell that I'm just smelling. It's about the pain and feelings that I'm having. So with consciousness, it's actually referred, if it's from sensory input from a distant sense, it's referred to the outside world. That tree is not in my brain. That tree is out in the outside world. That sound that I'm hearing is not being made in my brain and interpreted in my brain. It's projected out to the source of the sound. If I have a bad bellyache that's in my stomach, it's not in my brain. And referral is very interesting because it places the sensations everywhere except in the brain where the sensation is constructed in the consciousness. So the brain does not refer to itself, which is a very strange thing about subjectivity. And then there's mental causation, which is just the question about subjectivity, about how subjective, non-material, conscious precepts can lead to effects on neurons, motor neurons, and then that can lead to effects on the outside world. How can something non-material lead to, as we said in our book, building something like the Great Wall of China and these incredible building feats 
that humans and even other animals can perform. So that's how we broke down subjectivity, and we considered all those aspects when addressing the hard problem. And the reason that I spent time on this is because I think this is also relevant to the question of, you know, who has consciousness when you are later on in the book going through the evidence that animals simpler than us do, all of these features come into play. So that's really the reason why why I wanted to bring that out. So that just means that when we're considering the emergence of primary or sensory consciousness, we're really looking for all of these four elements of subjectivity, qualia, unity, referral, and mental causation. Exactly. And we showed, in a sense, took a traditional approach, even though I, I, we don't really call it such in the book. The big approach was to look for neural correlates of consciousness and then to find what animals have these and then build a story about how these physical neural correlates evolved and became more complex and then how that led to all aspects of subjectivity how the evolution and all the presence of the complex neural correlates, how those led to the relatively quick appearance of not just qualia, but referral, mental causation, and unity as well. Right. So before we can discuss the evidence for the idea that consciousness is older and more widespread than commonly thought. We need to discuss what sorts of biological features contribute to consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to this problem? Oh, yes. Well, many people who look for the neural correlates of consciousness look just for the special features of brains and nervous systems that are associated with consciousness. And we did that, definitely. But we also looked at the general features of life that themselves don't lead to consciousness in all living forms, but they are present in all living forms. And they're also needed as a basis for the special features to have evolved from. And we should say that uh, life has a lot of unique features that the physical sciences don't have. One of these is that all living things are based on cells and cells or the collections of cells are bodies. So there's embodiment in all life and that's also a very important part of consciousness. There are goal-directed programs in all life. The genes operate in such a way to fulfill the goals of reproduction and metabolism and other interactions with the environments that life does. So it's, it's goal-directed and way at the higher level for consciousness, these basic principles don't go away. Consciousness is goal-directed, especially that mental causation that we talked about conscious goals of doing things. Also, life is subject to natural selection. It's adaptive and it changes with environmental conditions. And part of our story in our book is that consciousness itself is highly adaptive and greatly aids the survivals of all organisms that have it. So you keep these basic general principles of life when you evolve consciousness, 
But consciousness also includes some special things. And actually, the last of the non-special features that before the special features would be the evolution of a nervous system and reflexes, maybe in some simple ancestral worms that were not conscious. But reflexes allow fast responses to behavior, and they involve communication of neurons. So that was a prerequisite for consciousness as well. But then with the special features, starting with simple reflexes that were, are made of arcs of just a few neurons, those reflexes became more and more and more complicated. At first, they were associated with something called simple motor programs, where maybe a simple worm can perform feeding movements. That's not quite a reflex, but it's unconsciousness, and it, it's uh, at the reflexive level. But then the first real special feature would be the increasing complexity of the reflex arcs into more and more levels of neurons and actually forming a hierarchy of more and more and more complex neural processing. And the key to this would have been the evolution of the distant senses and complex sensory organs. So many different kinds of sensations and sensory input documenting the world fed into these increasingly complex reflex hierarchies that became a, a necessity for the fantastic world mapping of senses that was consciousness. Oh, and another thing is that from the simple reflexes, you get hierarchies where the sensory information is processed more and more complexly as you go from one level of neurons to the other. And along these levels of neuronal processing in the hierarchy, another key feature was that there was a lot of crosstalk between levels of the hierarchy. And at first, for every single sense, so communication between the hierarchies for the different senses. So there's a lot of inner communication that's called uh, recurrence or reentrant communication between neurons and neuron levels of the hierarchy, a lot more fancy processing of information. And then finally, near the top, all the information from all the senses is put together into this, the sensory mental image of the world that I said earlier was so important for uh, image-based consciousness. And then there are some other special features of consciousness that are pretty obvious. A complex brain is needed. Memory mechanisms, memory centers in the brain are needed so that a big part of consciousness is referring to memories so that you don't have to rebuild every conscious moment one after another, one after another. You can just modify the memory version. And memory is also very important for learning and emotional consciousness, learning from good and bad things. So memory is definitely a hugely important part of consciousness. And finally, uh, consciousness is very closely related to attention and directing attention. So within these neural hierarchies leading up to the brain, there have to be attention-directing mechanisms. So I don't know if I missed some, but I think those are most of the what you call the special features of consciousness that building upon the general features of life make consciousness very, very special and unique. Right. I think starting with the basic 
biological features of life is really important because, for example, I think Evan Thompson argues very persuasively in Mind and Life that subjectivity is is built into being alive. I mean, because as soon as you have an inside and an outside, there's a difference. You know, there's a separation. Oh, yes. I like that very much, too. I mean, that's the first step to solving the hard problem is to see that some of what we look at as being hard is something that all life has. Oh, yes. Very good. I was pondering his thoughts on that last night, and I like very much that the subjective-objective divide is not only between the mind and the neurons of the brain, but it's also between the body and the outside world. But it's also, interestingly, between the brain and things in our inner body, like our stomach or our, our muscles and our, our uterus as well. So maybe with the, the hard problem, we should have divided the hard problem down into even more ways. Well, I think at some point in the book, there's a philosophical discussion about how it's irreducible in two directions. And I don't think I want to go there right now. I mean, just because, I mean, our brains don't ever look at themselves. Right. There's That's a gap that we can't ever overcome. And no one can ever be be inside of our experience. Those are two gaps that are just part of the way things are. But that doesn't mean that we need some mysterious explanation. Yes, I'm glad you noticed that. That's a point we're trying to drive very hard. There's nothing in the physical world that says you can't have privacy and you can't have a barrier between my subjective experiences and your objective probes and measurements coming in from the outside. There's that barrier there. And one of my favorite themes is that evolution completely maintains those two barriers that you talked about. So not only are they physical and real and natural, but they're selected for by natural selection. Yeah. So the first brains were probably not conscious because they weren't complex enough and didn't do the things that you talked about a minute ago. But you argue in the book that during the Cambrian explosion, this is when things happened that were really, really important. And I know that, I mean, you could have a whole, you would talk for hours about what happened in the Cambrian explosion, but could you give us just a brief overview of what that was and why it's important to our discussion? The Cambrian explosion is something that was first picked up as something strange about the fossil record from rocks that turned out to be Younger than about 520 million years ago, there were lots and lots of fossils. And from rocks that were of animals, of animals, I should say, of complex animals, with hard parts especially, but representing all living animal phyla. But from rocks older than what turned out to be 520 million years ago or so, or Precambrian rocks, there was almost no evidence of fossils of uh complex animals. Well, since then, some fossils have been found, but mostly simple forms. And for our purposes, a lot of them were just soft, simple worms before the Cambrian. And so you go from the most advanced animals on earth that are related to us being simple worms to suddenly being every single one of the 35 known animal phyla that live to this day within a period of Maybe it's hard to date exactly, but 50 million years or so. Mm -hmm. Which is short by time of the Earth. <laughs> oh, yes, right. So that's, that's a blink of an eye in terms of geological time. And what is thought that happened is that predation evolved. You got the first predatory worms that could eat other worms. Now, before the Cambrian explosion, my picture is that these worms were just simple, 
no brains, just nerve nets, simple, no complicated senses, just going along, chowing on what you call this thing called a microbial mat. It was incredible. It was this worldwide shell ocean layer of scum with lots of bacteria and lots of algae in it. I call it a, a free 50 million year long buffet table. And the worms just had all the food they needed. It was just incredible. But then when one of the worms developed adaptations that it could eat another worm, then suddenly there was a big arms race. The prey had to develop defenses against being eaten. And this involved advanced senses, advanced senses, as well as in some groups, strong armor or good hiding. But in the prevertebrates, it was advanced senses. And then in the predators, they also evolved distant senses so they could find and sense and smell and see the prey. And every advantage of each group led to more complicated senses, again, except in the prey that found ways to hide and hide behind armor and burrow into the, into the ground. But if you want to stay out in the active world and actively graze on that microbial mat or on other animals, you had to develop and evolve all those complicated senses. And the environment became much more complicated too. Lots more animals moving back and forth, swimming above the surface that you never had before. So having real complicated senses that could bring in smell, visual, touch, water vibration, this was in the ocean, electricity, electric fields, in the ocean, senses that could detect these and smell, 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 and visual images, visual images, they were strongly, strongly selected for. And then to process all that complex sensory information, the reflex hierarchies became more complicated and it led to the evolution of brains. And it led to the ability to form sensory mental images of the environment because that's the most efficient way to organize all this sensory information about a predator or about a mate or about a food source. That's the most effective, efficient way to organize that inside the new brain. And so that led to not only the first brains, but the consciousness within just uh, several million years. And the double duplication of the vertebrate genome was also a very important event that happened around the same time, right? Yes, yes. Because we couldn't have gotten such complex nervous systems without that. We wouldn't have had the genetic material to work with. Well, oh, that's an interesting thought. I gave a talk on that last month in Washington, D.C., and it might be a little more complicated than that because vertebrates definitely are the most complex animals on Earth because of their genome, and their brains are the most complex just like you're saying, and their cell types and their body plan are, are the most complex. But there's arthropods too. And arthropods were experiencing all these same things that vertebrates were experiencing. And actually, arthropods were ahead because the arthropods were the predators and the vertebrates were the, the gentle prey. That was something that when I read that in the book, I was like, hmm, I never <laughs> thought about that before. <laughs> 
Oh, yes. It used to be thought that vertebrates gained their great sensory organs and their extreme brain evolution and intelligence, as it were, because they became predators real early on. But no, they did this all while they were uh, gentle suspension feeders, still feeding on the remnants of that buffet mat that I talked about earlier. So the situation is that the arthropods remain comparatively simpler animals than vertebrates in terms of body plan and in genome as well. Their genome never duplicated. And so the genome duplication might not have had anything, not too much to do with the evolution of consciousness in vertebrates or arthropods, but it might explain why vertebrates are larger, much more complex, successful animals in certain respects than arthropods are after the evolution of consciousness. Okay, so in the book you talk about the evolution of vision, and your book argues that that really represents the dawn of consciousness. Can you talk a little bit about why you argue for vision? So that's good. Some people, and this is a viable alternative, think that some people think the first distant sense to start evolving and becoming real complex was smell. The primitive wor worm had what you call these chemoreceptors that could sort of smell and sort of taste, but not in a real elaborate way. And the first worms also had photoreceptors, little uh, light detectors, but definitely not vision-forming eyes. Well, theoretically, we agree with those, and there's sort of a long history of other workers that came up with this idea. We agreed that vision was a more logical sense to have been the first of the distant senses to evolve, and that the other important distant senses just came along to help vision. I Saying it simply, I think you can get so much more information from vision than you can get from any other sense. Uh, you can get spatial information. You can get detailed discriminations of colors and shape. You can tell immediate movements of predators coming toward you. You can just tell so much from a complete camera eye produced visual image that the selection toward that is is stronger uh, with smell you can you know eddies and currents might disperse the odor molecules it, it's harder to get any kind of real precise image and so that's why i think uh vision came first right because you are arguing in this book that it's the production of mapped images that represents the arrival of sensory consciousness and you that it's easier to to see how those mapped images can happen by looking at the sensation of vision and the pathways for vision. Right. Whenever we think of vision, we think of a, a perfectly point-by-point point, uh, laid-out map of the whole world. It's the quintessential mapped sense. Even all the other senses are, almost all the other senses are mapped as well. I just want to take a moment to mention our sponsor, Audible.com. Audible has been sponsoring Brain Science since 2007, and as most of you know, they are the world's leading provider of downloadable audio, including audio versions of many of the books that have been featured on this show. One thing I don't think I have ever mentioned is that there is a bibliography page on our website at brainsciencepodcast.com. It lists every book we have featured in the last 10 years, along with Audible links whenever they are available. If you aren't already a member of Audible, you can learn more at audiblepodcast.com forward slash brain science. We're now up to the key question, which is that the generally accepted view is that only mammals and birds 
have this primary consciousness, sensory consciousness. So how do you go about proving that, in fact, all vertebrates have primary consciousness? Oh, that's a big question. And it even gets into the point of solipsism. How can you prove anything has consciousness, especially anything that can't tell you? (laughs) So it winds up being extremely difficult. And it's real easy to get into these logical loops and circular reasoning where you don't realize you're assuming what you're trying to prove and and and, and things like that. Well, t- start by telling us why the lamprey is an important player in this question. Oh, very good. What I was kind of getting at is that I was trying to break out of this this circular reasoning loop and Todd Feinberg and I were. And so I thought that if you could come up with some way to get into the question that has a very strong logical base that has some evidence to support it. That's the way to do it. And lampreys, as the living vertebrate fish, the living vertebrate animals that have the most primitive characters and are surviving today, those lampreys turned out to have the features that we logically would associate with primary consciousness. And this is what led Todd to contact me. He recognized that, well, first of all, vertebrates have the complex senses. The most, well, invertebrates that are closely related to vertebrates don't have the complex senses. And so then he recognized that all these complex senses, vision, smell, electroreception, touch, hearing, etc., taste, All these senses go from the sensory neurons that pick up the sensory stimuli in the outside world in an organized map-like pattern and project to the brain. And so basically, uh, literally, the, the axons, the neurons are kept apart from one another in a map-like point-by-point pattern, it's the same as the original stimuli were in the outside world, especially for vision and touch, especially that scene there. And most of those senses, especially vision, converge on a part of the midbrain, not the forebrain cerebral cortex, which, which fish don't really have, but the midbrain and a part of the roof of the midbrain called the optic tectum. And that's where it can be physically demonstrated by tracing axons that there's a merging of the senses. And if you stimulate and you look at the pattern of neurons in the optic tectum, it's all just a map of the outside world, as we can say it. And all the kinds of senses contribute and feed in point by point to that map. So to me, this looks like, hey, they're building up a representation of the outside world in their optic tectum. And if they're building up a representation of the world, then they got to be accessing that representation of the world to help control behavior and to help control movement decisions and, and things to do. Yeah, because evolution's pretty stingy. It doesn't, stuff that's not useful doesn't keep on being passed on. Right, right. And you wouldn't make, if you're building up uh, representation maps, of the real world. You've got to use it for something. And so the way I view it is that that's got to be building a mental image as an efficient thing to refer to when the midbrain signals the motor centers to perform behaviors in these basally arising lampreys and fish. And then it turns out that this mapping in the optic tectum, which I would call conscious mental images, and Todd Feinberg would also, that's present in all fish, the shark-like fish and the bony-like fish, and in all amphibians, then in reptiles, but especially in birds and mammals, 
then the primary consciousness site could be different, the cerebral cortex or the corresponding structure in birds. Right. And so the bottom line here is that by assuming that there's only one place in the brain that is where it occurs in birds and mammals, I mean, I think in the past it's been, oh, these structures, this is not happening in these lower animals, so they can't be having any consciousness. We have to broaden our view that, that it could happen in a different a different place in the brain. Right, exactly. We found that all our supposed neural correlates of consciousness, like the complex processing and the neural hierarchies and the extreme organization of the sensory inputs into maps, we found what all our criteria for consciousness would be, you know, building images, they're all present in the, in the system that leads up to the midbrain of these basally arising vertebrates. So we have to consider that there was a shift of the center primary consciousness in the evolution of birds and the evolution of mammals from basal forms. Okay, well, let's talk about, what about memory? We have to have some mechanism for memory even in the simple, simplest level? Oh, yes. Even in animals that we consider to be unconscious like uh, or non-conscious, like worms and slugs, they have memory mechanisms built into their basic circuits, kind of between the sensory input and the motor output part. But in terms of actual, when a brain evolved in the first vertebrates or the first arthropods and there was consciousness, there were definite brain regions for forming memories. Right. For the sake of anyone who actually knows any neuroanatomy, I guess grew out of the area called the dorsal pallium. The dorsal pallium exists in the lower vertebrates, right? But it's not as extensive as it is in birds and mammals. Am I right about that? That's what grew into really major parts of the cerebral cortex, correct? Exactly, yes. Lampreys and most fishes and all amphibians have a, a relatively small dorsal pallium. I think is mostly involved with, with forming memories, but it's not well investigated yet. Right. And then as we get into the birds and mammals, it really expands. And memory, obviously, is a big deal in higher levels of consciousness. Yes. I should also say that there's something near the dorsal pallium in the forebrain called the, the hippocampus. And that was very important for forming the memories, too. And I, Yeah. And I'm going to comment that there's an interesting conversation in the book that we can't get into about what happened with the mammals and the birds when they, you know, developed the next level of consciousness because they took different pathways since the early mammals were very much using olfaction or smell as their primary sense and the birds stuck with vision and that's reflected in the way that the, the brains have developed differently. But unfortunately... We definitely don't have time to get into that. I just want to mention that for people that might be interested in learning more about that by actually reading the book. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about salience or effective consciousness. Now, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about the different theories about the origins of effective consciousness. We clearly don't have time to get into that. But what I really want to do is to talk about the fact that since Effective consciousness didn't leave any fossils, and we have to look at living animals. What kinds of evidence do you consider when you're trying to decide how and when effective consciousness evolved? Okay, yes, very good. The consciousness of uh, likes and dislikes and... Right. Uh, Yes, that effective, almost emotional likes and dislikes. I use effective because my listeners are familiar with Jacques Pancip's work in 
effective is, uh, you know, his preferred term since, you know, emotions and feelings, both those words carry baggage that leads to a lot of interpretation problems. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I read you. I was just being extra careful in case your readers didn't know. I totally agree with you, though. This is kind of cool because remember with the, the sensory consciousness of mental images, I needed a hook to get into the clear away all the fog, to get into, you know, start with a logical hook with the lampreys and the detectum and the, the mapped inputs. Well, that was Todd Feinberg's way in, and I thought it was brilliant. But with uh, effective consciousness, I was looking a little more myself, and the kind of hook that I decided to get into answering the question, Todd's uh, strong help, definitely, was... Let's logically try to think of some behaviors that some animals have that indicate they really, really have likes and dislikes. They're not just robotically responding, but they really have likes and dislikes. So if they like something well enough to approach it or they dislike something well enough to avoid it, well, that's sort of some proof. But I wanted to get have a double proof. And I came up with, Todd and I came up with something called body-wide or global operant learning. Maybe you've mentioned this in your other podcast, but, but that just means that not only do the animals show approaches and avoidances, but they remember it because they've learned from experience to come back. So that was the first criterion. If animals could learn something and then come back to it because they like it, etc., that's the first evidence that they really have likes inside that they're really consciously feeling. Okay, well, then I came up with another behavioral criteria that were, were all similar and kind of related to operant conditioning. Like, can they weigh a positive with a negative and balance off and come up with a compromise of, between what to approach and what to avoid when there's conflicting signals? That indicates they really are evaluating likes and dislikes, and they have them. So anyway, we came up with five criteria, five behavioral criteria for determining whether animals have likes and dislikes. And we found that we weren't expecting this, but we just found that all the vertebrates can do that operant learning that I told you about, all the vertebrates. And invertebrate, relatives of vertebrates, apparently could not. And then we found out that insects and arthropods and octopuses and cephalopods also could learn operantly just like and fulfill those criteria. So we had our hook and we just coincidentally, the same first vertebrates that apparently had image-based sensory consciousness also had likes and dislikes of effective consciousness. And so we thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. We hadn't expected those to come together. Hmm. So what about interoception or, you know, signals from inside the body? Do we know when they happened? Well, I suspect interoception, it's pretty clear it, it evolved even in the, the pre-vertebrate ancestors of the vertebrates because they have nerve endings that can be traced to their internal organs from the brain and spinal cord. But when it became consciousness, became conscious in evolution, that's a little tougher. Uh, interoception is just horribly understudied. And with all of these types of sensory information and brain organizations, almost everything is, it's so mammal-centered, it's so human-centered. But interoception is 
much yeah. worse than that in that regard. Yeah. So, but but what about pain? I mean, that was something that I found very fascinating in the book that pain's different. Oh yes, we found pain to be a very difficult subject to pinpoint exactly when it evolved. We wound up going with the idea of this researcher named James Rose, who points out that there are certain types of axons of a certain width and myelinization that occur in mammals and people that carry the sensations for suffering pain, for burning, suffering pain. Yes, yes. And there are also other fibers for sharp pain that doesn't last very long after the injury in humans. And he found that fish have very few of the C fibers for suffering pain. So he came to the conclusion that uh, fish really don't suffer, but they do feel the sharp pain. So if they're constantly being cut or hurt, they're in constant pain. But in terms of being able to, I think they get hurt and then they forget about it according to his, they don't feel it according to his view. And we, we adapted that. Yeah, the evolutionary, that, that makes sense. A fish can't just stop and hide. It's got to keep on keeping on. Yes, and if it shows the signs of pain, if it shows that it's been wounded and that it's, it's groaning with pain in, in a fish set or favoring a side of the body, that's a sure sign for predators that this is a weakened animal and you get them right away. So on page 168 of your book, I love this quote. It says, suffering would have arrived last, not first. And I just think that that was a fascinating idea. And it makes sense from the standpoint of the neurobiology and the lack of C-fibers, because we know that people that have a lack of C-fibers cannot feel pain either. And that's a bad thing if you're a person. (laughs) Yes, yes, right. So, I mean, the the jumping to the conclusion that fish don't feel that kind of pain is not as specific speculative as you might think if you take into account what we know from people. I mean, even though that's not a perfect system, it does, you know, we do know that people can have a lack of pain and that can cause a problem. Right. So, so far where we are is the key idea again that consciousness is older and more diverse than we ever thought. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a cerebral cortex because we now have evidence that in fish and amphibians, the optic tectum can do parts of that job. And we didn't get into it about the subcortical limbic structures where effective consciousness starts. And that's okay because I've talked a lot about the subcortical origins of FX with Jacques Panksip in the past. Oh, so good. I can refer everybody back to that. Oh, good. In our book, we even uh, showed that those subcortical effective structures are present all the way down to all fish and lampreys for the most part. So we totally agree with Dr. Panksep about that. So I think it's fair to say that pushing consciousness back to the emergence of vertebrates over a half billion years ago, that's a pretty radical idea. It will seem radical to many people. Can you talk about how other scientists have responded to this idea? Well, interestingly, we haven't got as much feedback as I, I thought we might. I don't quite know why. My sense is that the animal behavioralists will be sympathetic and the animal biologists will be sympathetic, but the people who have done consciousness studies in the past have been so just, this is almost my pet peeve, they've been so human-centered that they, you know, they haven't been trained in understanding neuroanatomy and in more basal 
vertebrates. And so maybe they wouldn't quite know what to think of it. And the many consciousness workers who are philosophers would even have more trouble with the uh, neuroanatomy of a, of a lamprey. You know, they wouldn't know much about it. And then there's also this big thing about the history of life and paleobiology. It might just be too revolutionary. I hope that's not a self-aggrandizing word, but it, it might just be too strange to say that in order to study consciousness, you have to know a lot about evolution and detailed neurobiology. Well, I think you might be onto something there. You have come, your approach is very multidisciplinary, and that is still not the way most people are trained. So even most of the people in philosophy of mind came into the field before neuroscience had much to contribute. Oh, and, interesting. And the younger people recognize that they need to know some neuroscience, but they're not the ones running things yet. Oh, that's very, very informative. But having said this, I think we're running into a lot of resistance by the people who believe that consciousness can only be attributed to the cerebral cortex of mammals yeah. and the thalamus system and the corresponding structure in birds. They, they firmly want to draw the line at the birds and the mammals because they say the cerebral cortex is for consciousness, period. Right, and don't even go there with the insects. Oh, interestingly, I'm just currently reviewing a, a set of papers that were published almost exactly the same time as our book by Andrew Barron and Colin Klein, and the name of the papers are sim simply Insects Are Conscious or something along those lines. And they found regions, to make a long story short, they found regions in the insect brain that are like the optic tectum of basal vertebrates that where all the senses converge and come together, possibly to form a multisensory image. So they strongly say insects have primary consciousness. I should say that insects have few neurons and tiny, tiny brains, <laughs> smaller than the head of a pen, and, and that may prove a problem. Yeah, the question of whether they have the necessary complexity is a very big deal. But, uh, so, but I should say that this, you know, this thing about insect consciousness has gotten some play, and it hasn't been completely shouted down like, like Todd and I were afraid would happen if we claimed insect consciousness a couple of years ago. So I think the idea of non-mammalian, non-bird consciousness might take off. So what's the most critical challenge to your theory from your viewpoint? Well, it's still extremely hard to draw a lower limit of what organisms are conscious and what are not. You know, how do I know another group of people isn't going to come along and lower the lower it to lower worms or something? It's very difficult. And if you can think of any things that you think would be the biggest... Well, I, I was thinking of the one that you mentioned in the book, which was the argument about whether if complex neural hierarchies are fundamental, what about hierarchies that are clearly unconscious? That's the one I was trying to get to. That's the... That's the main one. Yeah. So if we're going to argue that the complex hierarchies are fundamental, how do we tell a hierarchy is conscious or not? I mean, even when we were talking about interoception, we know that a lot of interoception in humans is not, not conscious. Right. And a lot of monitoring body movements and muscle contraction through proprioception is, is not either. Well, I just have to maybe follow the argument of Cock and Tononi and, and say that in the upper levels of those non-conscious sensory hierarchies, there's a lot of repeated modules that don't talk back and forth with one another quite as much as in the conscious cerebral cortex that they use as a conscious example. Mm -hmm. There's more separation of the modules. And so you need that re-entrant 
communication to the extensive amount, but I don't know how much, so it's a little. We also had trouble pinpointing exactly how many neuronal levels in the hierarchy you need in order to even have have real consciousness. We guessed maybe four or five, but that was hard to pin down. And the problem is we just don't know about the details of neuronal processing, especially in the optic tech which is our key area. It seems like it's neuronally complex enough, but the processing has been horribly understudied, as have fish and amphibian vertebrates in general. Mm-hmm. Another challenge will be, what about all this sensory information that, let's say, comes to the human brain and is processed in the, in the human brain, and it's unconscious. Yeah. Like in the binocular dominance and the intentional blink that we were talking about. And I think, oh, that was in um, Evan Thompson's podcast of yours. Our answer to that is that the experiments that have been done on those weekly or non-conscious stimuli, uh, those are so weak that they're probably just either degraded consciousness or consciousness that doesn't make it. And it's just not good to compare that with anything in in fish and amphibians, because any fish and amphibians that tried to live with a missing stimuli with intentional blink would, would be dead in a minute from a predator, you know? Right. And what I was thinking was that in humans, because we do have such complex brains, we can learn how to do something consciously and then, you know, sort of reassign it to the unconscious you know, do it automatically. So just because a particular thing is unconscious in us now doesn't mean that it has to, by definition, always be unconscious. Oh, when we're first learning it, it can be it can be conscious. Right. And so, you know, visual information that, as you mentioned, a fish would need to survive and therefore it would need to stay, you know, in the primary consciousness. That same information might not be important to the consciousness of of a person. Oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. It it emphasizes how difficult it is for people to put ourselves in the minds of other animals. Right. We know that our brains kind of sort of discard an awful lot of the information that comes in, right? Because otherwise we would totally have information overload. Right, right. Uh, I mean, you know, there's a theory that one of the problems that people with autism have is that, you know, too much information is coming into them. Um, a lot of them have very, they have sensory overload because they don't have the normal filtering that we have. So our world is so complex, we almost need stuff to be thrown away. Oh, sure, sure. And uh, What have I left out that you, you know, came into the conversation wanting to share? Because I'm sure there must be something. Oh, not too many. I can explain a little bit about neurobiological naturalism and just to emphasize that uh, Todd Feinberg and I are definitely in the field of, of consciousness studies that says it's all natural. There is definitely no dualism or anything like that. We're strictly for traditional known scientific principles one day being able to explain everything about how consciousness is produced. Uh, again, no mysterious, unknown mystical forces or physical forces. So that's why we called our theory naturalism. Mm-hmm. And it was based on Dr. Searle's theory of biological naturalism that says consciousness is natural, just like digestion and all other biological processes are. But we felt Dr. Searle didn't emphasize enough that consciousness has a whole lot of new, emergent, unique properties that you don't have in ordinary biology. 
So that's why we changed the name of his theory to neurobiological, because there's all sorts of special neural things in consciousness. Right. But they're all natural. Absolutely, in our view, yes. I did want to reemphasize that consciousness is adaptive. I gave reasons for that in the book, but again, the most efficient way to really direct your behavior is, is to build a realistic mental image of the world that you can refer to to guide your behavior. And this has to be realistic to a certain degree. You can manipulate it, you can imagine and add to it, but it has to be grounded in reality. And if you've got that uh, blueprint and template, you can interact with the world much more efficiently than if you had to have every single possible million type of behavior you could do hooked up to an individual million type of, of reflexes. So it's extremely efficient and adaptive. And definitely for effective consciousness, it's extremely adaptive to, of course, know what things in that simulated world and in the real world you want to approach and which you want to avoid and which things you kind of want to approach and which things you kind of want to avoid. You want to rank the types of behavioral responses you have from most desirable to least desirable and that's what effective consciousness does. Tremendously vital for survival because if you start liking things that are going to kill you, natural selection is not going to let you survive. So consciousness is adaptive. Qualia. But it's expensive. Oh, it's yes, it's very expensive. But I think as I heard in one of your other broadcasts, you can streamline your picture of the world and make it as simple as, as possible or as complex as possible by adding more neurons and more processing. Uh, make it as simple as necessary and as complex as necessary for survival. So, and, and it's also not more expensive than having to have a million different motor programs tied to a, a million different sensory neuron reflex arcs. Right. So that's why it's reasonable that consciousness is probably an essential component for complex behavior. I mean, I when we so. go back to the animals that are clearly, as far as we can tell, in our present state of knowledge, not conscious, their behaviors remain fairly simple. Yes, very good link. And I also understand now what you were saying, that consciousness is expensive. It's expensive definitely in that uh, of the 35 phyla of multicellular animals, maybe three to four of them evolved consciousness. The other ones took shortcuts and developed a lot of armor or ways to hide and be unconscious and uh, rather inert. Right. Yeah, that was about why consciousness is adaptive. A lot of people, a lot of people wonder what qualia are for and why we have them. I think qualia are valuable just because they're discriminations. You, you need to tell red from blue. If you can see just two colors, it's much more, those are just two simple qualia, but it's much more valuable to see 256 million colors in, in people. Qualia allow you to tell one thing from another thing in a way that aids survival. Then I guess the other thing I would just maybe like to add is that I just think if we are now coming toward the idea that other animals besides mammals and birds are conscious, we no longer have our human frame of reference to ask all the questions about what consciousness is. If you alluded to this earlier in the interview, if, if primary consciousness is really the question, because that's everything else which just could be window dressing beyond that, we can't be trying to look at humans all the time to understand primary consciousness. It's like, well, I saw the movie Star Trek, the newest Star Trek movie a few days ago. Yep. And oh, you, did you see that one too? Or? Yep. 
It was good. Oh, it was, yeah, it was a great one. And I just was amazed at how complex that spaceship was, the Enterprise. It had all these backup systems. It was self-healing. It crashed and it still came back to life. Uh, nobody was killed in it. It was the most incredible transportation machine I could ever imagine. Well, that's the human brain. Now, for consciousness, basic consciousness, that could be an ox cart with wooden wheels pulled by oxen. So maybe we're looking in the wrong place and barking up the wrong tree if we're trying to study the Starship Enterprise when we really want to just look at the ox cart. We're never going to get from, we're never going to get to that ox cart if we don't even know, you know, if we don't get away, if we keep looking up in humans. So I guess this is an appeal to consciousness researchers to study brains of fish and less complicated fish and insects and the reptiles, especially reptiles, horrible lack of knowledge about reptile brains and, yeah. and such. The place to answer the question is maybe not in humans and monkeys. It's somewhere we've been missing for forever. And then you could get real progress beyond what we even have today. Good. So I have quite a few listeners who are interested in careers in science, neuroscience and related fields. Do you have any advice for them? Oh, well, I guess I would just have to say neuroscience is is probably the most fascinating field of science and that there's there's just so many more things that need to be that need to be known and progress is moving along so quickly that I would say um, if you can go into it and keep up your enthusiasm about it that would be just fantastic I do think however I hope I'm not outdated on this but I do think the field of neuroscience is very full of scientists so it's it's highly competitive it's highly competitive yep. so they might find that it's it's not so easy to get grant money and to build a successful career compared to to other things other pieces of advice are uh always try to devote yourself to the questions uh in modern science it's it's so easy to try to just devote yourself to getting the next grant or to get enamored with some fantastic new techniques. Keep your eye on the prize, such as how does the brain work and what causes consciousness. And uh, I think that keeps scholarship and true intellectualism in science. And I'd also like to say uh, be, be integrative. Don't just focus on one aspect of neurobiology, but try to learn about philosophy and history and all intellectual endeavors. You'll find you can answer your questions a lot more easily if you can bring in general biology and even, like I showed, a lot of fossils and paleontology and the whole pageant of the history of life on Earth. So I guess those are just some of the pieces of advice. Uh, keep the youthful enthusiasm, though. That is great. I think those are good pieces of advice. And I really appreciate you taking so much time to talk with me today, John. I've really enjoyed it. And when the show is released, I will be sure to you know, send you and the publisher the links. I, your book is published by MIT Press, and so they're really good about uh, on Twitter and stuff. When we post stuff, they always tweet it and stuff, so you'll get some good promotion. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I really, really appreciate that. I want to thank John Malott for taking time to talk with me about his fascinating book, The Ancient Origins of Consciousness, How the Brain Created Experience. As usual, we were only able to touch on a few of the book's highlights, so I want to take a moment to review a few key ideas. 
This book argues that primary or sensory consciousness first emerged during the Cambrian explosion about 520 million years ago. This makes primary consciousness both older and more widespread than is generally assumed. The book also attacks what philosophers call the hard problem, which is how is subjective experience generated by physical nervous systems. Feinberg and Malott argue that this requires a multi-pronged approach that includes combining neurobiology, evolutionary biology, and philosophy. First off, Malott made it clear that primary consciousness is what he called pure unreflected experience, which does not imply reflection or self-awareness. The main criteria for primary consciousness or the ability to have an experience of the world or one's body is to have some sort of isomorphic sensory mapping. And in the book, there is a lot of discussion about the neuroanatomy of this process. Another thing that they considered in the book was the biological features that contribute to consciousness, including the features that are shared by all of life, such as embodiment and adaptive behavior. These are important because, as I mentioned, Evan Thompson has pointed out that embodiment is the fundamental origin of subjective experience. Of course, being alive doesn't ensure consciousness or subjective experience. The next step was the development of nervous systems and reflexes. And then finally came what Malat calls the special neurologic or neurobiological features of consciousness, such as complex neuronal hierarchies and, most importantly, crosstalk within and between these levels or hierarchies, which led to the integration of the sensory maps into a unified map of the world or the body. And that requires a complex brain memory mechanisms, and the ability to direct attention. Based on these criteria, they looked at the nervous system of the lamprey, which is a jawless fish that biologists feel closely resembles the first vertebrates. As I mentioned, the Cambrian explosion was an important time. It was the time about 520 to 560 million years ago when all of the phyla that are now present on the earth suddenly appear in the fossil record, and this includes the first vertebrates. Malat talked about that how there was a predatory arms race that may have driven the development of brains and complex nervous systems. One key idea was unfamiliar to me, and that was that it was the arthropods that were the big predators of the Cambrian. The vertebrates were actually prey, and they were very small. Something else that happened during this period that was extremely important was the double duplication of the genome in vertebrates. This provided the extra genetic material, which allowed the creation of more complexity. If you're interested in learning about this genome duplication, you should go back to my second interview with Seth Grant, which is episode 101. Next, we talked about the evidence for primary consciousness in the first vertebrates. The lamprey is used as a living stand-in. As Malat explained, it has visual maps that terminate in an area of the midbrain called the optic tectum. 
Now, obviously, the sensory map alone is not enough to prove that the lamprey experiences primary consciousness. They also have to show that the other sensory signals are integrated in the same area and that the animal's able to attend to its environment and to behave appropriately. Now, when we start looking at behavior, there's some overlap with the evidence for affective consciousness because we need to look for behavior that requires more complex memory. Malat talked about global operant learning, but I want to take a moment to explain why this is important. On a very early episode, I talked about Dr. Eric Kendall's Nobel Prize winning research on memory. Dr. Kendall used the Aplesia sea slug, which is an invertebrate that no one thinks is conscious. But it does demonstrate classical conditioning, which is a type of memory where the animal learns to associate a so-called unconditioned stimulus with something else, such as when a dog starts to drool when it hears a dinner bell. Classical conditioning does not require consciousness. However, operant conditioning does. In operant conditioning, the animal learns that if they do a certain thing, it will lead to a certain result. In classical conditioning, the animal responds to a stimulus in an automatic or unconscious way. But in operant conditioning, the animal chooses to demonstrate a behavior to get a reward or to avoid a punishment, which requires actual memory of previous events. So we can't ask animals what they experience, but we can observe their behavior. When they demonstrate preferences and avoidance, it is reasonable to assume they have some memory. Some surprisingly complex behaviors of this type have been observed in animal, in some arthropods and octopi, which is why Feinberg and Malott proposed that they too may have primary consciousness. What are the implications of claiming that primary consciousness is older and more widespread than has long been assumed? One thing Malott pointed out is that it means that we need to look beyond mammals and birds when we're studying consciousness. He used the analogy of trying to study the Starship Enterprise versus a simple ox cart, where basic consciousness is the ox cart and the human brain is like a starship. As I was listening to the recording of this interview, I was struck by the thought that if some insects do have primary consciousness, maybe we need to begin to see consciousness as more of a continuum rather than something that suddenly appeared. Just like we now appreciate that intelligence is widespread and varied among non-humans. It is certainly clear that there is an awful lot more that we could learn about nervous systems by studying animals from all the different phyla. Now, the reason that I featured the ancient origins of consciousness, how the brain created experience, is that I have been fascinated by the evolution of the brain ever since I read Carl Sagan's classic, The Dragons of Eden, way back in 1979. This book takes the conversation to a new level, and I highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in learning more. The book does contain quite a bit of technical detail, but I think it's worth the effort. I would love to hear what you think about this episode and these ideas. You can send me feedback at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Before I close, I want to give a special shout out to Lori Wolfson, who has been transcribing both Brain Science and my other show, Books and Ideas, for many years. Unfortunately, Lori is dealing with some health issues that have forced her to retire from this role. 
There is no way I can ever thank Ori enough for all the work she's done through the years, but I can tell you that no one can really replace her. Transcripts are going to continue to be available, but it is possible that at least for this month there might be a lag between when the episode is released and when the transcript comes out. Today I'm going to skip most of the reminders I usually include in my closing remarks because these are available in the brief audio I released last week, but I do want to take a minute to talk about the future. In March, when I announced that Brain Science was taking a six-month hiatus, I was not sure how much longer I wanted to continue the show, although I did hope to reach the show's 10th anniversary, which will be in December. One reason I haven't been sure what to do is that producing brain science is extremely time-consuming, which makes it very difficult to embark on new projects. If you're a long-term listener, you know that I've often emphasized the importance of taking on new mental challenges. So I find myself torn between wanting to keep this show going and wanting to embark on several new projects. Not necessarily all at once. So I have decided to continue brain science on a less demanding schedule. What this means is that I'm hoping to release a monthly episode through the end of 2016. But after that, I will probably only release a new episode every few months. This decision is partly based on listener feedback, because many of you have told me that you want the show to continue, even if it does come out less often. Obviously, this means that I'm going to be increasingly selective about which books and scientists are featured, but I'm also going to look for opportunities to re-release some of my favorite older episodes. Moving forward, all new episodes will be free, while premium subscribers will continue to get episode transcripts and unlimited access to the entire library of back episodes, which includes about six years of content released before 2013. Finally, I want to thank you for listening and for sharing Brain Science with others. Please don't forget to write a review on iTunes and visit our website at brainsciencepodcast.com. Brain Science with Dr. Ginger Campbell is copyright 2016 by Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this recording to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The theme music for Brain Science was composed and performed by Tony Catraccia. You can learn more about his work at syncopationnow.com.